Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 14, Paul is wrapping up this amazing letter. He's assembling the final pieces of the rocket before launching it to Rome. He's preparing Phoebe for the mission that she will be on to bring this letter to the Roman church, influential church. He's had not been there before. He didn't know these people well. He's writing from Corinth, crazy Corinth, writing to these refined Romans. Maybe he's thinking, this is a wonderful church in Rome. I've got to visit it. I'm pretty tired of being here in Corinth with these crazy Christians. Christians in Corinth that were wrestling with issues over whether or not they could eat meat that was sacrificed to idols because you had Gentiles who had come to Christ, but they just didn't want to go back to the meat market and eat that food because it reminded them of being a pagan and it might suck them back into those practices. And ironically, he's writing this in to the Christians in Rome where, where you had Gentiles that felt like they could eat anything, but it was the Jews who were all bound up about what they could eat and not eat. And so as he's dictating this letter to the man who is writing it down, he is indicating that we're now beginning to, to wrap up the letter. He's saying to Tertius, look, this is almost finished. I'm coming around the final bend. I've already encouraged these believers with some very practical application. Last week, we saw he was sort of going back into the, uh, the playlist of, of ancient Hebrew songs that celebrated the destruction of the Gentiles, and, and he was sort of doing a remix of those so that the Gentiles could celebrate and sing along because they saw that in it, the great glorious coming of Christ to destroy the nations meant that the remnant among those nations would be called in, grafted in along with the original covenant people to be the one people of God. So Paul is really on a mission to wrap this up in a positive way. And we find ourselves in verse 14, and what I'd like to do is just cover 14 through 21 this morning. Please follow along as I read Romans 15, 14 to 21. This is the word of the Lord. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit." In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. 
by word and deed, by the power and signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Alurikon, which I wrote like that because I can never pronounce that in the moment, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand." In the letter to the Colossians, another church that Paul had never visited but wrote a letter to, he says in chapter 1 and verse 27 that the mystery of the Gentiles being included as the people of God was a mystery that is the very glory of God's grace. It is the very hope of glory, namely that Christ would be in them. Christ in them, the hope of glory. And I was thinking about that verse because it summarizes almost everything that we've looked at in this last section of Romans 12 and forward. Hope and Christ in you. Hope because of Christ in you. Christ in you, and therefore hope in nothing but Christ. And so as, as Paul is wrapping up this section, he is saying that same thing. And so if there were a title for the sermon this morning, it would be, Our Hope of Glory, Christ in You. It is His work in you, it is His work for you, and it is His work through you. It is His work in you, it's His work for you, and it's His work through you. Let's talk about his work. First of all, this verse 14 imperative, his work in you. I love how Paul begins this section with a personal greeting. He says, I myself, he's, he's emphasizing it, that, that I myself am personally persuaded or satisfied about you. I believe in you. I accept what I'm hearing about you. I'm convinced about you. That's so encouraging. It's so positive. Paul writes a positive letter to the church. Don't you think sometimes, maybe when you're reading your Bible, that every letter is going to be a letter that is condemning or corrective? Like, I'm not going to get a letter unless I'm in trouble. When I grew up and I was in, when I was growing up in school, if I got a letter to take home to my parents, it was never because I did well hey, I just wanted to write your parents a note saying Jonathan is an extraordinary student, a model of virtue, and the kind of child I wish everyone else would imitate. My mother, who might be watching this, can affirm I got none of those. None. It was always something else, and it was always a letter like, bring this to your parents. It was always sealed, and they said, don't open it, which of course I did because I had to have some defense lined up. Paul writes a letter to the Romans, and, and he's not critical of them. He might call some things to remind her, but he's not critical. He's not beating them up, and neither should I. 
You shouldn't come here on a Sunday like ready to, to, to take a beating. You ever been in church? It's like, you just show up and it's like, okay, it's sermon time. <laughs> Cover your head. Here it comes. Paul, 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 Paul is being so encouraging and affirming. And he's, per, and he's saying, no, it's me. I am satisfied about you. You're my brothers. You yourselves. Like it, it's going all the way direct to each one in that church. And he says, you yourselves are three things. What does Christ's work look like in you? These are three things for you to be noticing, okay? Number one, he says that you are full of goodness. You are full of goodness. You are full of it. What is it? It is goodness. And the word full, it's great. It's used elsewhere in the Bible to talk about wine vats overflowing and, and nets overflowing with fish. Nets so full of fish you can't even bring them in. It's that kind of full. And he says, you are full absolutely to the brim. He doesn't say you're almost there He says, you are there. You have arrived with this respect. You are full of goodness. And that's the intrinsic goodness, God's goodness, holy goodness. The goodness of uh, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit kind of goodness. Of Ephesians 5.9, of 2 Thessalonians 1.11, this is the the God goodness, and you're full of it. What What a wonderful thing to say to a church. I'm fully convinced that you are brimming with goodness that comes from the Holy Spirit. Consider that the next time you're wrestling with somebody within the body who maybe isn't behaving the way that you wish they would. Call your attention to that reality of God's work in them. That they're full of goodness. Appeal to that goodness. But not only that, but they are also filled with all knowledge. And the word filled there, slightly different word, that word filled and the way it's constructed in the original, it's a continual filling up. It's almost like that overflowing concept. It just keeps filling and filling and filling and filling. It's like a lake with a spring at the bottom that keeps bringing fresh water up and in. And you are being filled with this word knowledge, the the Greek word gnosko. It's the experiential knowledge, knowledge that comes from doing something. Knowledge that comes from experience. You don't just read the book about it. You actually do it. This is learning on the job. So you are full of goodness, the Spirit's kind of goodness. You are being constantly filled up with the -the on-the-job training in righteousness that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then finally, you are able, or the better word is empowered. It's where we get like the the English word dynamite from. Like you you are empowered powerfully in order to do this one thing, and that is instruct one another. And, and, and instruct there, it's where we get the word nuthetic from. It, it's that idea of coming along close to counsel, to care for, to speak to one's mind. Isn't that an amazing way of building up this body? He's, he's lovingly encouraging them to say, you are a wonderful church. And not only are you good, and not only are you knowledgeable, but you're able to take your good application of experiential knowledge and apply it to other people to counsel and shepherd them. He says, I am so encouraged by you because of the way you can care for one another. And I want to echo that to you this morning. I am so encouraged by you because of the way that you care for one another. You care for each other in this church. We don't have like a counseling department. We have a counseling church. 
Everybody is doing it. And when you come alongside another brother or sister in Christ through discipleship, through instruction, even through rebuke, even through correction, you're doing it for their good, and you're doing it because you love them, and you're doing it because you have the knowledge that comes from knowing God and His Word. And in that, I rejoice greatly. That is an evidence of the grace of Christ at work in you. But He's not working just in you. He is also working for you. Look at verse 15 and 16. He does have to remind them from time to time of certain points. And he says, I have written very boldly to you just to bring it back to your attention so that you are aware of it, so that you don't drift and you don't forget. And when he says remind, (laughs) it's an intensified reminder. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that word epithumia, or desire. Had that prefix, epi, where we get epic from. So, if you don't remember that, then I'm going to do what Paul does here, and I'm going to call it to remembrance the thing that I taught you earlier. But it was a strong desire, a, a dysfunctional desire, an addictive desire, a desire that can oftentimes be directed towards something that as a result causes violation of the very commandments that we read earlier. And so what I think is interesting is Paul goes back and says to them, I'm going to remind you, but it's an epi-reminder. It's that same prefix. It's like an, a, a strong reminder, a very intense reminder. It's so important that he is willing to sort of throw his apostolic weight behind it, and he is going to say, I need you to remember this because of the grace that was given to me to do this, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. That is so important. Please, it's underlined in your bulletin because I want you to see it and remember this word. It is not commonly used It's where we get our English word liturgy from eventually. It was somebody who would serve the people, a servant of the people. It was used later to talk about politicians who would serve at their own expense. Now just pause for a moment and consider that. Imagine if all politicians served at their own expense. Couldn't take a salary. You just just served because you you really did want to do something for your country. Just thought I'd throw that out there. But in the Roman world, that was often what happened. You made your money doing something else, and then you didn't need the the job, so you would go and you would would be a public servant. You would actually serve the public. You would would do things for them. And and Paul says, I am being, in a sense, a, a public servant to you by bringing you to God. And And if there's one contrast that I think would be helpful, I don't and you know I don't like to go to a ton of cross-references, but this, this is a good one, an important one. Go over to Hebrews chapter 8, and in Hebrews chapter 8, you can mark it or you can turn there. But this same phrase is used, same term, he says in Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He is a minister. So Christ 
is a minister. And he is ministering in the actual temple of God in glory that the temple on earth was meant to represent as a shadow. Paul is dragging that image into his lesson about what God has empowered him to do for Gentiles. It's language of the temple. And though Paul is not a priest in the religious sense, he says, I'm a priest in the eternal sense of what I'm doing. And so as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, my work is seen in a word that appears only here, the priestly service of the gospel of God. How can you be a priest of a covenant that doesn't involve sacrifices of animals? Right? Paul's saying this to the Romans. He's saying, he's saying I'm, a, I'm a priest and a minister of the gospel that is the heavenly reality I'm looking to. How can I be a priest if I'm not sacrificing anything? And the answer is that in this new covenant, the sacrifice has already been made. The sacrifice is, is Christ. What he is offering then is a sacrifice, as it were, a bringing in of the Gentiles. Look at what he describes this as. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. I'm not killing animals. I am making an offering. Once again, Hebrews uses this word all the time in Hebrews 10 over and over and over of the more excellent offering that is Christ. And here he says, I am offering up these Gentiles and I'm asking that they be made acceptable in the sight of God. Now, as affirming as we were earlier, let me, let me now bring some clarification. We are not in and of ourselves acceptable to God. None of us are acceptable to Him. We have to be made acceptable. And the imagery that Paul borrows, again, is going back to the Old Testament, where things that were not acceptable for worship were made acceptable for worship by the sprinkling of blood. Do you remember in Exodus when God gives instructions to Moses on how he's supposed to build the tabernacle, and he gets very clear uh, plans for how things are to be built. And after it's all built, it's all to be sanctified. And the way it is sanctified is by taking blood from a sacrificed animal and sprinkling everything with the blood of the animal. Sprinkling things with the blood of the sacrifice. And that was everything that was going to be used. Once that spoon had been sprinkled with the blood, that spoon was now a sanctified spoon worthy for service in the tabernacle. And so Paul goes and he borrows this language for us, and he says, look at what Christ has done for you. Because of his sacrifice, he has opened up a way for this minister, Paul, to come to you Gentiles. What a mystery that was. And in a priestly service, in the very gospel and good news of God, he is able to offer up Gentiles who were at one time unclean and unacceptable, and with the sprinkling of the blood of the Lamb makes them acceptable because they have been sanctified. Beloved, you have been 
sanctified. If you are a believer, you are sanctified. The text is clear. The doctrine is clear. The application needs to be clear. The text is clear that you are sanctified. The doctrine of sanctification is the doctrine of being set apart. The application of the doctrine, though, gets a little bit dicey when people begin to say, well, what about my sanctification as something progressive? So let's talk about that for a minute. When he says you are sanctified, he is drawing on the earlier section of Romans, specifically chapter 8. Go back just a couple pages. Now, this is really important stuff, so we'll take our time. He says in verse 30 of chapter 8, the golden chain of the Ordo Salutis, we call it, the order of salvation. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What about sanctified? Shouldn't, shouldn't it say, those whom He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He is continually, progressively sanctifying. And those whom He is sanctifying, He will one day glorify. Did Paul, did Paul mis- get, make a mistake? Get, get this wrong? Before we go much further, we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be sanctified? If, if the language here is that it is taking something unacceptable and making it acceptable, it is an instantaneous transfer from, from one use to another. It is a setting apart. And so the reason that Paul doesn't have to say sanctified in that order is that because it is assumed That when one is justified, one is sanctified. One is as good as glorified. And in God's eyes, from eternity, looking at the entire person, it's as good as done. As a matter of fact, you couldn't be justified or you not set apart by the justifying power of the blood of Christ. And only those who are sanctified could even be glorified. So then you say, okay, but then how do I understand sanctification? Because I've always been taught that sanctification is this progressive change in my life, and I have to always be looking into myself to making sure that I'm doing the good works. I've always got to be making sure that I'm reading my Bible, and I'm praying, and I'm witnessing, and I'm going to church, and I'm checking all the boxes, and I'm living according to the moral code. And I'm always evaluating myself and, and, and examining myself and making sure I'm still in the faith making sure I come to church every week so I have an opportunity to doubt my salvation. He says, listen, I want you to understand that you are sanctified. You are set apart. What is changing inside of you is that you are maturing. And if we take sanctification and we turn it into something the same as maturing or growing in grace or growing from faith to faith, or as John says, going from being a child to a son to a father or as our sort of theme verse around here in Colossians 1.28 talks about preaching, 
preaching and teaching and admonishing in order that we might bring people to maturity. When, when, when that which is a process gets imported into your understanding of sanctification, then it can become incredibly discouraging on the days when you don't do well. And it becomes incredibly tempting for people who are maybe with good motives trying to care for you to appeal to your sense of how secure you feel as a way of getting their point across and making you obey. Sanctification is a reality. Justification is a reality. Glorification is a reality. Assurance is something that has to be anchored and tethered to an absolute confidence in the finished work of Christ and not how well you're doing in your maturing at any present moment. Otherwise, it's just shoots and ladders. Remember that game? Climb the ladder, walk over, climb the ladder, walk over, climb the, uh-oh, roll the dice, I'm on a slide, right down at the bottom. You ever met shoots and ladders, Christians? How you doing this week? I'm doing really well this week, read my Bible every day. I'm even ahead. Yeah, like, we hang out today, how you doing? I'm on March 17th. I'm going to take a couple days off next week and just sin, because I've already got plenty in the bank. Praying every day, witnessing, handing out tracts. Haven't had any bad thoughts. Now, I basically don't sit anymore. I'm, I am, it's going great. And then something happens and they hit the slide. And then you see that person doubting their salvation, crushed because of not living up to their own expectations. And then people around them, well-meaning Christians, pile on. If that's your idea of sanctification, then, then you're not going to understand what Paul just told us. I mean, how is it possible that Christ is really working in me and for me and doing this on my behalf if I'm responsible for it? Sanctification, then, is the work of God, not the work of man. We are not saved by grace and sanctified by works. He doesn't day trade us based on how well we're doing and attach His love and affection to us. We are once and for all, by the power of the Holy Spirit, set apart and made acceptable to God, not because of anything that we have done, but because of the work that Christ completed for us. That's the lesson. Now, there is a work that is also through you. And this is in verse 17 and following, so let's look at that. Christ's work in you, Christ's work for you, His work through you. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Now, does He just undo everything I just said? You say like, oh, you should have read ahead, John, because Paul just disagreed with everything you said. No, he didn't. Don't worry. I've, Paul and I have consulted about this. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work. Why? For I will not venture to speak of anything except what? What Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. There it is. He says, am I proud of my work? Am I excited by what God has done in me and through me? Absolutely he is. It's not wrong to do that. It's not wrong to celebrate that. 
One should be thrilled at seeing the, the growth and maturity in your own life, and in the life of your family, and in your, in your marriage, and with your kids. I mean, you celebrate when they repent, and they come to faith in Christ, and they're converted. Uh, you, you have this uh, enormous amount of joy in seeing the people that you're pouring your life into walk faithfully with the Lord. But you know that it's all a work done by Him. And so on the days when it's not going so well, I mean, you're not broken and crushed and discouraged. Instead, you're just saying, well, pick yourself up and put your eyes back on Christ, and let's not be so introspective about it. You're going to fail. You're going to stumble. But in the end, you can be grateful for what God accomplishes through you, through the work of Christ. And the way that he describes it is by bringing the Gentiles to obedience. Obedience is an important part of conversion. When one is converted to Christ, when one is genuinely changed and transferred, sanctified, as it were, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, obedience is required of you, but it is redefined. It is no longer an obedience the way that a slave obeys. It's an obedience the way that a lover obeys. The wooing of Christ for His bride is such that we want to obey. There's that wonderful old hymn by William Cooper called Love Constraining to Obedience. And in there, it's a line that says, to see the law of Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice, can turn a slave into a child and duty into choice. To see the law of Christ, the eternal law, the absolute law, the perfect law, fulfilled in Christ. <laughs> to hear the pardoning voice that says, not just I'll let you off, but that I've completed it for you. Oh, and I've paid the full penalty for the fact that you couldn't. Turns a slave who is always going to be a slave, either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ, into a child, an adopted one, and all the duty that we felt we had to obey, the grinding struggle to uphold the law, knowing that we never could, suddenly we're freed and it becomes something that we do by choice, out of love and gratitude. Obedience is there, yes. Loved ones, you don't just say, well, I'm just going to sin that grace may abound. Paul's already addressed that earlier. It doesn't mean you just live any way you want. You're carelessly sinning. The obedience is there, but the obedience is a joy you want to. And so, what is Paul celebrating? He's celebrating that through him, God allowed him to preach the gospel to these Gentiles that resulted in obedience, and then he defines it. Look what he says. That obedience is by word and deed. So, it's in what you say. It's what you do. There's power and signs and wonders, both by Paul and by those who believed his gospel. And there is the power of the Spirit at God at work in those who are now obedient. And he gives this little um, footnote about how it looks because it was so extraordinary that these Gentiles who were previously idolatrous God-haters were now obeying him in word and in deed who are showing, showing these, these uh, signs of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and on top of everything else, 
They were so completely different now that the power of the Holy Spirit of God was at work in them and it made everybody notice. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, see, I couldn't do it. Psyched myself out. It's John Stead's fault because ever since he got here, I haven't been able to say these words like I was used to be able to. So let's just say from Jerusalem all the way around to that other city, which is the entire region where, where Paul was bringing the gospel. It's everywhere. Your, your reputation has spread everywhere. And as a result, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He's done everything that God has called him to do in that region. He has fulfilled it. It doesn't mean every single person is saved. It just means that he has, he has filled up what was lacking, as it were, in the sufferings of Christ, as described elsewhere, meaning he brought the truth of that gospel to everybody so that there was a testimony of it in the place where they lived. Verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul's ambition is to preach the gospel in a place where the church had not already been founded so that he could establish a church, strengthen it, install some leadership, and then move on to the next city. And this is what his goal is. In fact, as he's wrapping up the book of Romans, we're going to see this in the next couple of weeks, that's what he's trying to tell the people who are there. He says, I'm going to come and visit you. I want to come and see you for a while, and I'd like to get some help from you so that I can push forward into Spain. You're going to be a layover on my way to Spain, and I can't wait to meet with you. I can't wait to get to know you, to see you face to face, to allow you to, to, to help me on my way. He's laying out for them the, the great plan, his, his proposal. This is his, uh, his missionary goals. He says, I want to preach everywhere, but I don't want to preach where someone else has preached. Paul is not competitive. He's not going to go into town and say, well, you know, I realize there's already a, a church here, but we're going to plant another church because of all the flaws I found in this church. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, if you read some of the letters of Paul, he's not shy about addressing the problems. He is a loving shepherd. He's positive. He's encouraging, but he's not shy to identify problems. And if there were some of the problems going on in our church that were going on in some of those churches, your first thought would be, I got to find another church because there's just crazy stuff going on in this church. And, and yet Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't say, sorry, Corinthians, you blew it. I've tried several times to address this problem with you, but you continue in these sins. So I'm going to go plant another church. I'm going to go plant 2 Corinthians. He says, no. Stay in. You're going to work. And by the, the power of the Spirit, you're going to mature. And he says, I don't want to plant on someone else's foundation, but instead I want to go to fulfill Isaiah 52, 15, that those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. What does that look like? What does it look like when Christ is at work in you and for you and through you? It transforms the individual. It sets apart the people, and it gives you an opportunity to reach the lost. And when you see it from that perspective, obedience then is not a burden. 
And the gospel is the hope of glory to the Gentiles, namely Christ in us. And that is a weapon against three things that can so often come against us, even in otherwise solid churches. It's a warning to pastors. It's a warning to preachers. It's a warning to people who are listening to preaching. And it's these three things that I want us to be careful of at all times. Moralism, introspection, and religion. This is an antidote to moralism, introspection, and religion. Moralism is the goal to simply be moral. It's to say, well, all we need to do is identify outward behavior and tell people what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do, and as long as they they do that, and as long as we keep harping on that, then everything will be fine. It's all about what you look like on the outside. Introspection is the same thing, but going the opposite direction. It's that constant forcing of looking inward, always asking yourself, am I really a Christian? I, I didn't say it in jest earlier when I said there are times where people come into church almost with the expectation that it's the preacher's duty to make them doubt whether or not they're really saved. That there's some merit in decreasing somebody's confidence in the finished work of Christ. Friends, we don't affirm ourselves in our salvation by looking inward. We do it by looking outward. In fact, if you are moralistic and introspective, you can become assured in the wrong thing. In Luke 18, there were two people who came to pray. One was a tax collector, the other was a religious leader. And the religious leader looked down at the tax collector and he thanked God that he wasn't like him. (laughs) And he recited to God all the good works that he did. And this poor other guy, just broken over his sin, beats on his chest in total brokenness, and he just says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one do you think went away justified? And the answer, obviously, is that the sinner who just beats on his chest and begs for mercy went away justified. And the other guy didn't. But Jesus also could have asked, which guy went away with assurance of his salvation? I guarantee you, the guy that was willing to pray out loud that he is so thankful that he's not like this other guy went away very assured and very wrong. And so, if you've got this moral agenda coupled with some introspective agenda you can inadvertently create a culture in a church where there is either great doubt cultivated in the hearts of people that should be putting their trust in Christ or great pride in the hearts of people who are really good at following rules. And the last one is religion. Religion is coercing others into following our external standards is coercing others to believe that somehow through whatever work or whatever deed or whatever organization or whatever structure that they can earn merit in the eyes of 
God, and then we foolishly import that into our culture and demand only that people take fake fruit and staple it onto themselves, and then we're pleased because they at least look like us on the outside. True conversion based on true belief leads to true repentance and obedience and fruit-bearing. And unless we preach that, then we just preach religion. And so, this doctrine applied is simple. If Christ is in you, then He has done everything that religion would tell you you have to do. If He is for you, then He has already completed everything that religion would tell you to do. And if He is working through you, then you are going to be the salt and light in a world and religion isn't going to help you. And so, may we be those who, when in times of doubt and struggle, encourage one another to turn our eyes to Christ and in Him find the author and finisher of our faith. And then to Him be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this truth. We are we're laid low in humble adoration at the cross. There are those who are burdened by a life of sin, and may they see in the righteousness of Christ all the work and all the law-keeping that they would ever need to do, and it was imputed to them, that it would not be them, but through Christ in them. And may those on the opposite side of the spectrum who are quite confident this morning, may that confidence not be in any deeds done, but in the amazing grace that saved them. And may we remember that even those with external goodness, people like Cornelius, who are lifted up, as it were, for their moral character, are not in a position to have any claim, but instead are drawn to somebody who will tell them that in spite of all the good that they did, it is not sufficient, and that they need a Savior. So today, by the power of the Spirit, apply this truth to us for our good and for your glory. Thank you for this wonderful church that is full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to counsel and care for each other. And may that continue. In your name we pray. Amen.